0: Hi, and welcome to the Dream Permit Podcast, a podcast dedicated to inspiring moms and empowering moms to live up to their full potential without viewing motherhood as a hindrance. And I'm your host, Emma. I'm so glad you're here. This episode is sponsored by my signature coaching program, You Unveiled. Do you feel like you've lost your identity to motherhood? Do you have dreams you would like to achieve but you feel you can't simply because you're now a mom? Would you like to make extra income utilizing skills and gifts you already possess? If you answered yes to any of the questions, I would love to chat with you. Let's see if you're a good fit for the program. Book a free call at dreampermit.com chat. That is dreampermit.com forward slash chat. Let's get your identity back and make you some money. Hey people, people. welcome back. So today we will be going into a intimate topic. Yes, we'll be talking about things we usually shy away from, menstruation, miscarriages, and birth control. I know some of you are already going, EU menstruation, Emma, what topic, why? Trust me, just, just trust me for a second. Trust me on this. You will be amazed what you learned today. To address this topic today, I have a special guest, Amanda Lerich. Amanda is a registered holistic nutritionist and host of the Heavy Flow podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to periods, reproductive health, and other taboo health and wellness topics. Amanda is the author of the forthcoming book, Heavy Flow, Breaking the Course of Menstruation. The book is published by Dundon Press in February 2019, and she lives in the beautiful city of Toronto. Amanda, so great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, Emma. I'm
0: so excited to be here. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So I, like I said earlier, I don't know if you were listening to the intro, but I know some of my guests are like, menstruation. Okay. <laughs> Is that even a like, topic? Like, what are we? So I was, Um, I would like you to start by addressing um menstrual periods. I was listening to a uh, couple of your podcasts and you mentioned how menstruation is not a monthly course, and um, that it can actually provide insights into our overall health. Can you shed more light on this, please?
1: Yes, absolutely. So when we, oftentimes we think that our period is just, you know, one thing that happens every month, Right. But what we often don't realize is that our period or our menstrual period is part of our menstrual cycle, which is a bigger bodily function that actually has an effect on our health and wellness every single day of the month. So not just when we are menstruating Um, and, you know, our menstrual cycle, this is key to reproduction. This is... Uh, essential for, you know, getting pregnant, but there are other important reasons why our menstrual cycle is a good thing. And the hormones that are, the hormones that are, um, implicated in our menstrual cycle also do other things than just make us bleed. Um, Obviously, they help with ovulation, so that's when an egg is released from the ovary if we're trying to get pregnant. And these hormones also play a factor in things like our appetite, our mood, our sleep, how much energy we have, um, how sociable we might be, our appetite, um, and also our important factors in things like our bone health, our brain health, and our breast health. So, you know, in our culture or cultures around the world, I'm from Canada, but I know it's, you know, very similar in most cultures around the world. Um, our periods are taboo. They're looked at as a curse, something that is supposed to be painful, um, you know, something that is shameful that we shouldn't be talking about with friends. Definitely not on a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we're really kind of missing the point by that. That So, you know, we need periods, we need our menstrual health. And, you know, our hormonal health, just like our periods aren't, you know, existing in isolation every month, our hormonal health doesn't exist in isolation within our body either, right? And our hormones are kind of like Dominoes. If you imagine lining up do- dominoes, right? You knock one over, oh, and yeah. that's going to push everything down. Well, the same thing happens with our hormones. If one hormone or some of our hormones are out of balance, that is going to have an effect on all of our hormones, which is going to have an effect on all of our body organs and our bodily functions. And we're going to start to have symptoms either in our menstrual cycle, or other symptoms sometimes as well. So we can use our monthly period or menstrual cycle as a window into our overall health and wellness. Because if our hormonal health is good and balanced and our hormones are healthy, then the rest of our health will be healthy as well. And we're going to get our periods on a regular basis and without a lot of pain or cramping or other side effects maybe emotional side effects or physical side effects as well our periods should not be a curse if they yeah. are then that's usually a sim, sim- uh, sorry usually a sign that something else is,
0: is wrong, wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so what i wanted to like so what you're saying is um we can use our, our menstrual cycle to understand our brain health, our bones, and um, our breasts, right? To make sure everything is going on fine. Is there is there a particular blood test we have to take, or is there? How do we know that um, these things are, you know, fine? And what does I don't know if I'm asking so many questions, but let's start with the first question. Let me let me rephrase. What does a healthy menstruation look like?
1: Yes, that's a great question. So oftentimes we hear that our menstrual cycle should be 28 days, right? That's the number that I know I was taught when I was in school and health class learning about periods for the first time. But that 28 days is actually an average. So it's normal for your menstrual cycle. So that's from the first day of your period to the next day of your next period. That's your full cycle. Okay. Um, it can be as short as 21 days or it can even be as long as 35 days. So that's a big difference. That's a two-week window, right, um, for what is considered normal. And then beyond um, that, once we actually get our period, yeah. we want to be, we don't, you know, bleeding should last between, you know, maybe four to seven days. And we don't want to be getting a lot of pain or either side effect, uh, other side effects. So um, that's, you know, cramps, backaches, headaches, bloating, breast pain or tenderness. Um, or emotional side effects, we might feel, you know, weepy, we might feel some depression or anxiety flaring up in the days be- before our period. These are all signs that our hormones might be out of balance. Also, we want to look at flow, too. Okay, so if we have very heavy periods that are lasting, you know, seven days or longer. That's definitely a red flag that we want to get checked out. And how much we should be bleeding exactly, it kind of varies. And I have, in my research, I have seen, um, you know, anywhere from a spot of blood to lots of blood being what's considered normal. So I would say that if we're soaking through A tampon or pad, or we're having to um, empty out a menstrual cup several times a day, you know, that is a sign that perhaps your flow is too heavy. And we also want to be mindful of clotting. So, um, you know, you might see, you know, in the toilet, you might see some like chunks, right? So, that is some chunks are normal. Particularly on I would to first... say that. Some some clotting is normal, okay. particularly on the first day of your period, right? Um, because what happens is when your uterus contracts to shed the lining of of your uterus, um, yeah. on those first days it is contracting harder and faster before our body can kind of release uh, anticoagulants to help slow it down because we don't want the entire uterine lining to come off all at once, right? (laughs) So our body produces anticoagulants to make sure that it's um, it's not coming all off at once. But sometimes it takes a day or two for that to catch up. So on the first day, some clotting is fine. But if they're really big, like, you know, the size of a quarter or bigger than that. Mm -hmm. That's something we probably want to get checked out. But even more important, what I tell my clients, what I tell listeners in my podcast, and what I say in my book, is it's really, really important to get to know your normal, right? What is normal for you? Because if you normally have you know, some small clots in your menstrual blood, and then suddenly you're seeing very big clots, that's where it should be a red flag, right? Or if you had a light or a moderate flow, and then suddenly it gets very heavy, then again, that's something that you're going to want to get checked out, because that is likely a sign that something has changed, something has, you know, perhaps caused hormonal imbalance.
0: That absolutely makes sense, but what what do people do? So, if, for instance, a listener, that, a listener that is currently listening, has actually experienced, say, painful periods or um heavy flow, or I can even use myself in, as an example, right? I used to have irregular periods before I got pregnant, and while I was single and before I got pregnant, I was advised a lot to go on the pill just to regulate my period. And I refused that. So after I got pregnant, my periods became normal. So how do you um, tally this together? Does it mean the irregular periods are a normal part of my since it since it was consistent? So it's a normal period? Well,
1: I mean, okay, so that's a complicated <laughs> question, right? Because sometimes, right? Like, what is considered irregular, right? Sometimes people think that if your period isn't exactly 28 days every month, that that's irregular, right? Yeah. But if you are keeping track of your cycles, right, you might actually start to see that, okay, it's not 28 days, but it is consistently 23 or 24 days, or it's consistently 31 or 32 days. Um, so it could be a little bit shorter, or a little bit longer.
0: The mm-hmm. other thing
1: to think about is um that it is normal for there to be some variation, right? so our hormones and therefore our menstrual health is very sensitive to things like stress, illness, traveling, if we're going through time zones um the food that we eat has an impact on our menstrual cycles, and so that can change things month, month to month, right? Okay, yeah. If there is a wild difference, right? So one month, your cycle is 35 days, then it's 21 days, then maybe you're going 100 days without a period. If there's a lot of variation like that, then that's usually a symptom of something else like say polycystic ovary syndrome um which is um a syndrome it shows up in different people in different ways but one of the big but the big things is that it inhibits um ovulation and so you're having irregular menstrual periods oh so, I think, yeah yeah so i like to be clear on what a regular is right mm-hmm. um now, it's interesting that you said you got pregnant, and after your you started menstruating again, after your child was born, um, that now your periods are regular. Yes. And that is not uncommon for our periods to change after pregnancy. And I have talked to so many different people, um, and everybody... Everybody seems to in like, almost everyone that I talk to would agree that their period changed in some way after childbirth or after pregnancy. Either they had irregular periods, or now they're regular. Or they had regular periods, and now they're irregular, right? Interesting. Or they had a heavy flow, now it's lighter. <laughs> they had a light flow, now it's heavier, right? Yeah. Um, and it seems that, you know, pregnancy changes your menstrual cycle. And there are a couple of explanations for this. You know, it's hard to say um, just kind of in general, like I don't have one specific reason, but there are a couple of factors, right? Um, so remember uh, earlier I had said that hormones, right, are very important in our body. Yes. And they're also very sensitive. And when we are, you know, going through pregnancy, childbirth, or even if we, you know, have a miscarriage, right? These are huge, huge, huge hormonal events in our body, right? And um, when we think about the postpartum period as well, if we're breastfeeding, that's going to have an effect on our hormonal health. If we are, you know, not getting enough sleep or we're not getting enough good quality sleep because we have... um an infant or my daughter is three and she often still wakes up in the night, if you're not getting that good sleep, that's going to have an impact on our hormones as well, right? So oftentimes, um, you know, in that kind of like year, first couple years after having a baby, we're just not living our most healthful life. Right, sometimes yeah. we're just eating whatever we can find off the toddler's plate, or oh, yeah, um, grabbing <laughs> what we can with one hand. Right, so all of these things are going to have an effect on our hormonal health. Um, and there are some studies, um, too, that show that one of the risk factors or a contributing factor to a heavy flow is childbirth. So, a lot of people um, find that, uh, they have a heavier flow after, um, they've been pregnant. And what I generally like to point out is, what other part of your body went back exactly the same as it was before you had a baby, right? Your hips yeah. are wider, your breasts <laughs> might be bigger, they might be saggy or, you know, your, your belly sticks out now. And the same thing goes for your uterus, right? Like after you, after, you know, um, your child was born, your uterus did not go to the exact same size and shape as it was before, so sometimes it might be a little bit bigger, it might have shifted in your pelvic cavity, and that could contribute to, you know, your flow being different, right? If your uterus is bigger, there's just more surface area for that uterine lining to grow, right? Yeah. And so if we have more lining, we're gonna have a heavier period.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah. I see I see how I see how it all ties together. Yeah. And the, uh, the other Go ahead. thing Oh, sorry. Um the
1: other thing I was going to say is um our periods change as we age as well. And so our period it's generally not going to our period is generally not going to be the same when we're 14, 24, 34, 44 years old, right? As we go through different seasons of life, what is normal for our period is also going to change too.
0: So are you saying this is irrespective of whether or not you've had a baby or not? So our periods are going to change whether or not you've had a baby?
1: Yes. I mean, there are some people who will have a 28 day or a 30 or whatever their number is. Like there are many people out there that their periods are like clockwork, yeah. right? Um, But there's also people who aren't, right? And as we get like age is definitely a factor. Um, Lifestyle is a factor. And as our physiology changes as we get older, our hormonal health and therefore our menstrual cycles are going to change as well.
0: Mm. so you speak a lot about um hormones and the only thing i've even though my listeners would be embarrassed (laughs) embarrassed right now but the only thing i usually that comes to mind when it comes to hormones is hormonal birth control so when you were just saying hormones i was listening to you but then i kept having this hormonal birth control at the back of my mind like okay so how does that fit into all this. So if my hormones work on their own and then I put in maybe the implant or the hormonal IUD, how does that throw things off? How does that align with things? Like can you shed more light on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to um, just kind of define what I say when I say birth control, right? Okay. So I'll use birth control as kind of a catch-all term to describe all hormonal methods of birth control. So anything that is a hormonal contraception, so that could be like the pill, the ring, the patch, the implant, or a hormonal IUD, right? Yes. All of these things have some concoction of uh, synthetic hormones that we are taking to kind of disrupt our hormonal balance so that we don't get pregnant. Right, yeah, so I think that there's this common misconception that when we take hormonal birth control, that we are regulating our periods, right? That's something that we hear a lot, right? Mm-hmm. but what is actually happening is when we take um, a form of hormonal birth control, we're suppressing the menstrual cycle, so depending. Now each one, like, so they all kind of work in a similar way, but each brand and each kind of format that you can get hormonal birth control in works slightly different. They might have a different cocktail of synthetic hormones in them. But generally what happens is they are suppressing ovulation because if we don't ovulate, then we can't get pregnant, right? Yeah, because no eggs are really released from our ovaries. So is that now, a bad or good thing,
0: though, suppressing um, the menstrual cycle?
1: Well, that's a loaded question, Emma. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I, I struggle with this question, um, and I've thought a lot about it. I talk a lot about it on my podcast. And, you know, I want to preface this, by saying that, you know, I want to recognize, um, you know, that birth control is important, right? It is important for women to be able to choose when and if they want to get pregnant, right? Um, I took hormonal birth control for many, many years and I didn't get pregnant when I didn't want to. Right. Yeah. So, um, I just wanted to be totally clear on that. At the same time, you know, I think what these hormonal methods of birth control and what is just kind of missing from our general conversation about women's health or female hormonal health is that our menstrual cycle is really important, right? Mm. And as I said earlier, you know, we need hormones like progesterone, um, which we make after ovulation, um, we need that progesterone to support our bone health, right. To support our brain health, to support breast health, right. Um, there are lots of important, it helps to regulate our mood. It helps with sleep, which I think, you know, you and your listeners would agree that those are important things. Oh yes. Right. Yes. (laughs) Um, and, you know, there's studies have started to show that, you know, women who develop um, like osteoporosis after menopause or heart disease or have a heart attack after menopause, studies are showing that um, these women who have uh, these other diseases show lower levels of progesterone, right? So there's a link there between... Um, you know, low progesterone premenopause and an increased risk factor for these other diseases after menopause, menopause being when we no longer menstruate or menstruate yeah. menstrual cycle. Stop. So I would say that, you know, just be big picture mm-hmm. that, yeah, it's not a good thing. It's okay. Yeah, i <laughs> turn off our menstrual cycle, right? Yeah. Um, But I'm, I also recognize that like birth control is a sensitive topic, right? So as I said earlier, um, you know, it's, it's essential for women to be able to have, to be able to make that choice. Um, but there's also other options out there for natural or non hormonal forms of birth control for those who want to use them or can use them. They're not for everybody. Um, just like hormonal birth control isn't for everybody. I do recognize that. Yeah. But in general, I would say, um,
0: it's safer not to suppress your menstrual cycle.
1: I wouldn't. Yeah. Well, I would say that there are health benefits to not suppressing your menstrual cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's important, right? Like, I mean, what other bodily function do we just turn off? Mm, right. Yeah. Oh, your your arm is sore. Well, I'll just let's just cut it. <laughs> <out>. Right. <laughs> That's not how it works. But for some reason, we have this idea that, you know, our reproductive how our reproductive system is something that can just be turned off and on when we want to
0: have a baby or not. Yeah. So I want to rewind a little bit because you said something um powerful there that I feel like our listeners could benefit from from that being like doubled down into like a layman language. So you said um you mentioned the research and is it put pro- is it progesterone, you said? Okay, progesterone. Progesterone. And there's a link now that um, women in menopause are likely to have some certain diseases because of a low progesterone. Or rather, there's kind of like a correlation. So Mm -hmm. can we just dial that down? Um, Some people are listening, like, okay, progesterone, and they skip past it. I personally feel that that's important. So essentially, I'll just summarize what you said there. And you can correct me and say, oh, Emma, that's perfect. Or, oh, Emma, no, I didn't say that. (laughs) So... I'm thinking that what you're saying is when you use hormonal um, birth control it actually s- reduces your progesterone is that correct depending okay
1: depending on the type of hormonal birth control okay. um but in general m- yes that is the case um usually it's suppressing your natural uh progesterone and it's replaced with a synthetic form of progesterone called progestin, mm. which, um, you know, acts similar in our body, but doesn't have the same health benefits as the progesterone that our own body manufactures.
0: Perfect. So as, that's what I just wanted to uh, clear, because I currently have the, the um, synthetic progestin. And um, yeah. it's just good to know, that's why I had to rewind this. <laughs> it's just good yeah, to understand yeah. that. So there's been a study And the research that says um women at menopause tend to have certain diseases like heart diseases and all that, and that has a link to low progester low progesterone, right? And now if you tie that back to the hormonal like it depends on the hormonal um birth control you're using, but you can easily tie that back and see that you know it's just good to be aware of the consequences. Basically, that's that's the only reason why I put a man the back so go forward back. Wish yours. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, um, when anytime you take a prescription medication, whether it's birth control or otherwise, there's always this kind of like long list of potential side effects, right? Or risks associated with it. And, you know, we often hear about blood clots or, you know, increased risk of migraine headaches, yeah. depending on the brand right? But what we uh, what we often don't learn about, either when we're making decisions around birth control, or just in general, like, you know, I have learned a lot of things in my time as a nutritionist and in doing research for my book. Um, I learned a lot of things that are just basic facts about my body that are important that I would have liked to have known, you know, 10 years ago when I was making decisions about hormonal birth control. Um, and we just don't really, we just don't have all the facts. And so how can we make truly informed decisions about what is best for our body, what is best for our health, um, what is best for our lives? When we don't even understand that our menstrual cycle is really important,
0: yeah, I like I like that you mentioned that if you had known earlier, you'd have made um certain you would have made probably you'd have probably made different decisions about your um sexual health and um chosen probably a different type of um bed control, and this resonates with me because I have like a couple of friends I would say probably like four friends, right? That when we were younger, so I, like I told you, I had irregular periods, so I was scared. So the only reason why I didn't want to go on the birth control was because I was scared that it would just diminish the whole period and I'll have nothing. (laughs) And I'll have nothing left and I'll probably never have a baby. So I just never thought, I was like, no, I didn't want that. I have a couple of friends that went ahead with, uh, um, with the uh, hormonal vet control, right, and they used it for a long time, and they were told when they were taking it that okay, that's fine. You just use it for you just use it for uh, maybe like five years, ten years, whatever. And once you're ready, once you stop, you get pregnant like immediately, right? And then I have like like I said, a couple of friends they did this. And that's when they stopped, it took them a while to have a baby. So does does this tie to the hormonal um? birth control or is it just genetics or
1: well you know I'm sorry to hear that about your friends because I'm I know how frustrating that can be and you know it's hard to say right I mean I think that yes there are a lot of factors right involved but I think hormonal birth control use is one of them And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how we have this idea, just like in our Western society, right? That our reproductive system is something that we can just turn it on and off like a light switch, right? Oh, you don't want to get pregnant, turn it off (laughs) with the control pill. Oh, now you're ready to have a baby. Well, just stop taking the pill, it'll come right back. And certainly, you know, there are lots and lots and lots of women who have gone off the birth control pill and gotten their period back the next month and everything was normal and they had no hiccups or bumps, right? Yeah. Um, but one of the factors to think about, right, is what was your period like before you started taking hormonal birth control? So, you know, you said that you had had irregular periods and certainly this was the same for me too. So I have a PCOS I wasn't diagnosed with it until I was 30 years old and I was no longer taking hormonal birth control. Um, However, I suspect that I had it when I was in my early 20s as well because I had some of the same
0: symptoms. Okay. Um,
1: And so, you know, if you had very heavy irregular periods before you suppress your menstrual cycle by taking hormonal birth control, Chances are you're going to have heavier regular periods when you come off of it as well, right? And because these hormones aren't, I'm using air quotes here, regulating your periods, which is what we're often told, like that makes sense, right? That makes sense to me that if, you know, you suppress the menstrual cycle and then you stop taking these hormonal, um, these, uh, hormones, synthetic hormones, mm-hmm. your cycles are gonna be about the same. And if you were very young, because a lot nowadays you might be 17, 15, I've heard of 14 and 13 year old girls being put on being put on birth control, right? Whereas your your reproductive system isn't even fully matured until you're 19, 20 years old. It's totally normal for being as a teenager to have a regular period, it takes a while for that body system to regulate itself, right? So if you were put on hormonal birth control, when you were a teenager, and now you're 25, now you're 30, now you're 35, right? We're often as well older when we're trying to get pregnant, yes. which is another factor. Um, You know, and but you have the reproductive system of a teenager because it's been asleep for however many years, right? That's going to have a factor. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I learned on my podcast from a guest on my own podcast was that often um, we're told that the average length of time that it takes for your period to get back to normal after you take hormonal birth control is eight months. But in reality, It's eight cycles. Wow. Yeah. So eight cycles doesn't necessarily mean eight months, right? If your cycle is 35, 40 days long, that's going to be longer than eight months. And it's not uncommon after you come off of hormonal birth control to have a period of what is called amenorrhea. So that's when you have no period, right? So you might stop taking hormonal birth control. You don't even get your next period for a couple of months. And so that's when that clock of eight cycles. Begins. And that eight
0: cycle could right? take you anywhere to two to three years. No. Yeah,
1: exactly. It could be years. Wow. Like it could take depending on, you know, your hormone, your hormone levels, depending on what kind of symptoms, your lifestyle factors, age, there's all kinds of factors that go in. So, I want to be like clear that it's not just like there's no one answer to this question. Um, but it, yeah, it could be, t- it could take you a couple of years before you get through those eight cycles.
0: Wow. Wow. This is insightful. Wow. Because, like I said, like there's so many situations. Like I have like people that have had this prior, like the bed control, even people that had a kid. And they went on the bed control, and they're trying to have the second kid, but are having currently having issues. So I, I would definitely be sending this episode out because I feel like yeah. it's it's always awesome to have knowledge so you know what to do instead of just staying in the dark and you know seeking for help, but help is not forthcoming. So thank you, thank you again for coming on this um episode. So I would, my pleasure. I'll move to the um, next question, which is a very touchy subject. Um miscarriages so how does or does it even affect how does menstrual period affect miscarriages is there a correlation or is it just uh does it just happen in isolation and um what should we do to get our bodies ready again if we have experienced this so that's kind of like a two-part question we could break it down to um how does menstruation or menstrual periods affect miscarriages?
1: Well, the first part of your question, um, I would say that's not that's kind of outside of my scope of expertise, okay. um because I think that there are a lot of factors that contribute to miscarriage, and we really only know a really tiny amount about what causes miscarriage, right? It could be genetic. It could be structural. Um, certainly, there are things that affect our menstrual periods that also affect fertility or affect, um, you know, our ability to sustain a pregnancy. So, if we have fibroids, if we have endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which often causes low progesterone, like these things are factors in fertility
0: mm.
1: so I would say that um but I I don't feel like I know much more beyond okay that. that's
0: that's okay from your experience as a nutritionist um what do you think we can do to get our bodies ready again after a miscarriage
1: right so that is a good okay. question <laughs> and um and you know one of the things that I want to say is um, this was something that I was really curious about when I was, before I had started my podcast, I really got curious about like, well, what happens after a miscarriage? Like, cause I had been, I have never had, I just want to also preface to say that I personally have not had a miscarriage. Um, so I, I don't have personal experience with this. But, um, you know, after my daughter was born, and then my period came back, around that time, you know, I was thinking a lot about my own cycle after pregnancy. Um, and certainly from friends, and, uh, you know, fellow moms that I met at the park or in play groups and things like that, we talked a lot about our, our periods after childbirth. Yeah. And I got really curious about like, well, what can we expect about our, what can we expect from our periods after we have a miscarriage? And um, a colleague of mine, her name is Samantha Zappora, and she has been a guest on my podcast, um, one of my favorite guests actually she introduced me to this idea of pregnancy relief. And she, what she pointed out to me is that there's kind of, um, you know, a commonality between what happens after a miscarriage and what happens after childbirth. Right? Mm. Because in both instances, mm-hmm. we are pregnant, and then we are not. Yeah. Right? And although the outcomes are different, there are some commonalities between those two and so again just like when we come off of hormonal birth control there are lots of people who stop taking hormonal birth control they get their period back the next month and everything is fine same thing happens miscarriages miscarriage, right some people you know depending on you know if it was a very early miscarriage if it was like six eight weeks you know, that's gonna be different than if you had a pregnant like a miscarriage at 19 or 20 weeks. Yeah. Right. Um, because you're just that much further along, right? So when your period comes back and what your period is going to be like is gonna depend on a lot of factors. And certainly, you know, a lot of people get their period back right away. Particularly after an early pregnancy, they might just have like a very heavy period. And then, you know, the next month, their cycle is back to normal. However, I know lots of people who might have had a miscarriage later in term in a pregnancy where, you know, they might have had more days of bleeding after and they had a period of, you know, amenorrhea after that miscarriage. Mm. So what I would say is uh, my advice is the same to regardless of the outcome of your pregnancy. So what I would tell somebody who had just had a baby um, and they're looking to support their hormonal health, I would give the same advice to somebody who just had a miscarriage because there are some common things between Okay. That. So um, – and I would actually also just like to say that these are just good rules of thumb for supporting our hormonal health regardless. So I feel like I've talked a lot about, you know, a lot of the bad things that can happen. Um, but the good news is, is that our hormones are so sensitive to what we eat and our lifestyle factors and exercise and sleep and stress. But the good news is that means that we can also use them to our benefit. So um, I would say um, making sure that we're eating really healthy, nourishing food is paramount. I'm a holistic nutritionist. So obviously food is very important to me and my practice. So getting eating as many Fresh vegetables and fruits, whole grains. Um, Getting lots of protein is really important. Um, So if you're a vegetarian, you want to make sure that you're getting um, protein that you need from beans and legumes and tofu and things like that. And if you eat meat, eating lots of good quality meat meat products as well. Um, Keeping warm is great for the body. So making sure that we're having, you know, warm, nourishing teas. You could, um, if you are into herbs, you know, talking to somebody who practices Chinese medicine or an expert in uh, herbal medicine can help you choose some herbs that are going to be really nourishing and supporting and balancing. And, you know, drinking those warm teas are just so good for our body. Um, resting and making sure that we're resting is really, really important. Um, you know, we live in a world that's just go, 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 go. I listened to your recent episode about having it all versus doing it yeah. all, right? Um, and so when we're running around with work and kids and friends and trying to do all the things, we can get burnt out and that's going to have an effect on our hormonal health. So, making sure that we are resting, that we're getting good sleep, and managing stress. Like, stress more than food, more than anything else, stress really plays havoc with our hormones. And I feel like um, when I was in school to be a nutritionist, we talked so much about managing stress. You have to manage stress, manage your stress. But then in the real world, what does managing stress really mean? Right? Like unless we're all going to move away to a remote <laughs> island, we're going to be stressed in yeah. some way. Right. Um, you're always going to have to pay the mortgage or you're always going to have to drop your kid off at daycare. Or there's always going to be a mother-in-law or whoever in your life. Yeah. Right? Um, it's hard to, hard to escape these things. And so more, so now what I have learned and what I have found to be a much better practice than saying I have to manage stress is how do you like buffer that stress right so taking time to actively relax um, taking time for pleasure so doing the things that you like to do just because you like them right so you know, rather than going to the gym and doing CrossFit or running on the treadmill for an hour, if that's not something that is like bringing you joy, like why not go to a dance class? If you love to dance or if you love to sing, are you making time to sing every day, even if it's just in yeah. shower or making time to read or garden or cook for the sake of just cooking and not because you have to rush to get something On the table at the end of the day. So taking that time to relax through, you know, doing meditation, doing yoga, journaling, um, deep breathing, all of that stuff is great for relaxing, but making sure that we are also making time for pleasure and joy for no other reason than because it is our own personal pleasure and our own personal joy is so important for supporting our home our hormonal health yeah
0: um so i would i would imagine like this answer you just gave covers um skin health as well because i feel like as moms that's like a big issue for us um once you give back to your kid or kids our skin tends to change and um you've given us great nutritional advice um for some mm. it's, it's interesting right for some women they give that they kind of have like vibrant skin, and some other people their skin tends to like become all dull. So I would just I know you've given us like great advice, but can you mention like five things like your superpower foods that you can that can help make a dull skin a vibrant? So um, what what are your go-to items sure. like five items to help? For yes,
1: skin. Well, OK, so I just want to mention that that glow that we get when we're pregnant or in the second half of our cycle before we're breaking out. So oftentimes, you know, especially if we're getting like breakouts, that kind of stuff can be tied to our hormonal health. And another one of progesterone's fabulous um side effects is that it helps give us glowy dewy skin so there's another good reason (laughs) to be ovulating regularly um, because it helps with our skin but I would say if skin is something that you are struggling with um, I don't generally like to recommend a lot of food restrictions but I do have to say, and it pains me to say this because I am a cheese lover myself, but dairy products have an effect on our skin. And so if we're eating a lot of dairy, whether that's yogurt, cheese, milk, ice cream, all those delicious yeah, things, delicious, <laughs> that, that can show up in our skin. So if you, especially when it comes to hormone-related, like acne or skin eruptions, um, that is really important. And so if that's something that you're struggling with, I would recommend maybe um, cutting, cutting it out for a period of time. Um, you want to usually give it a couple of cycles because it takes a while to get out of your system. Um, and you want to give yourself a couple menstrual cycles to see how that's, um, to see how it changes. Once you get it all out of your system and it's under control, that doesn't mean that you can never have pizza again, or you're never going to get to eat cheese again, But we definitely don't want to be eating it three times a day once we've kind of gotten it all out of our system. And after you've taken a break from dairy for a couple of months, then when you eat it for the first time, you're probably going to see pretty quickly what it does Mm. to your skin. And then you can decide kind of like where your threshold is. So getting rid of dairy, um, drinking water, and making sure that we're drinking enough water is so important for our skin. Um, and so making sure that we're drinking water throughout the day, stuff like alcohol, coffee, these can be really dehydrating as well. So if you are having coffee in the morning or you're having a glass of wine in the evening, you also want to make sure that you are like getting enough water on, like to replace the water you're going to lose from these de- dehydrating stuff. Um eating lots of fruits and vegetables and lots of plants um is really good for our skin as well. Um I really love a supplement that is becoming more and more popular these days called oh, collagen.
0: Yeah.
1: And um collagen is the most um, abundant protein in our body. It helps with our hair, our skin, our nails, our digestion. It's a great source of protein. So putting a scoop of um, putting a scoop of collagen in your smoothie or in hot chocolate, or you can put it in any hot or cold beverage, and it just really mixes in. And I love it as well for like, Instead of like protein powder, I like the collagen um, because it doesn't have a taste and it like really mixes in so that it doesn't have like that a gritty texture or anything. Um, And so having some collagen every day is really great. And then um, the other tip, the last tip I would have, and this might be surprising for people to learn, is that your digestion and your skin health are really closely related. So if you are not going to the bathroom on a regular basis and you are not um, having a good bowel movement um, at least once a day, that can sometimes show up in our skin. um, Either through acne, dull skin, rashes, things like eczema. So making sure that you're getting lots of water, lots of fiber every day, and that you are going to the bathroom can be really helpful. Um, and sometimes um, taking like a probiotic supplement um, can be really helpful for that as well for skin and for also supporting your digestion.
0: And digestion is good for home. Awesome, awesome, awesome. When you mentioned pimples, I was just touching my face, and I was like, next time I see any pimple, I'm just gonna think, am I going to think, am I going to the bathroom today? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Well, it's important. It is important because our skin is actually our largest cleansing organ, right? And um, if we're not going to the bathroom on a regular basis, um, you know, excess hormones like estrogen hangs out in our lower intestines. And if we're not moving it out with a good bowel movement every day, it's going to be reabsorbed into our body. Um, And same with like toxins and waste and just gunky stuff that our body is working hard to get try and get rid of. Um, If it's not getting moved out, it's just going to kind of like sit there and it's not a good scene. So what happens is your body is like, I've got toxic stuff. I need to get this out of my body. It's not going out the back door. So it's going to start to push it through your skin. And we might see that in pimples, in like cystic acne, um, skin rashes, eczema, all that kind of stuff can be related to our digestion. Awesome.
0: Awesome. So I want to ask you another question that I'm sure my listeners will be interested in. So that is how can I know when I'm most fertile, so I can kind of ramp up the baby making activities. I mean, you we all want to increase our odds, right? So, how can we know for sure that this is a fertile period?
1: Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite nice. questions to answer. Um and um, you know, our body tells us. When we are entering that fertile phase, and if we can start to tune into our body and start to observe some of our signs of fertility, then we can start to time intercourse to increase our chances of conception. And that also works the other way too. If you don't want to have a baby, um, then you can avoid intercourse during this time um, to make sure that you don't get pregnant so it works both ways um so some things to look out for is cervical mucus so um you may do you know what cervical mucus is yes
0: fantastic I was I was it's like you read my mind I was like cervical mucus I've heard of it several times in fact there's this thing you talk about is it tartan I've never had to do it because, like I said, I had irregular periods, so I was looking forward to us having this conversation. So I'm ahead of it, but I'm not even sure I've experienced. So maybe I have, but I don't know that it, you know, what it is.
1: Sure. Well, um, so cervical mucus is exactly what it sounds like. It's mucus that's produced by our cervix, and at different points during our menstrual cycle, it becomes more fertile. And this, when we see this, then we know that we are, depending on what it looks like, um, we know that we are entering our fertile phase. So after our period is done, we usually have, de- depending on our menstrual cycle, everybody is different. So like I said, it's important to get to know your normal. And I will recommend a couple of resources uh, when I'm done explaining okay. this so that you can learn more. Um, so after your period, generally you might start to, you might have a couple of days where you have no discharge or you have no mucus after your period is done. And then what you might start to notice and everybody is different. Some people, they will see it in their underwear. They might see it on the toilet paper after they go to the bathroom or other people might have to like actually go looking for. Yeah. It. <laughs> um and it starts out as like a sticky, kind of white, creamy discharge or mucus, and then as we get closer to ovulation, um as we get closer to ovulation, it starts to become more watery, more stretchy, more stringy, and at the point around ovulation where we are most Fertile, it looks like egg white. So um, you might have heard somebody talking about egg white yeah. cervical mucus, and that's what we are talking about. And there are, you can look it up online. There are lots of pictures online, and it looks just like an egg white. It's sticky, it's stretchy. You can stretch it between your fingers. And that's when when you see that, that's when you're
0: ripe. That's
1: <laughs> when you know that you are most fertile. And um, that uh, fertile mucus, you know, it acts as kind of lubrication, um, although it, it's different from like lubrication from when we're aroused, but it it acts, it, it can help with that too. Um, and it helps to balance the pH in the vagina so that sperm can live longer. And if you were to look at it under a microscope, you would actually even see that it has these like, almost like tunnels running through it that helps the sperm to swim faster. And it can also help to like, um, this is my favorite part of my favorite fact about cervical mucus is that it actually helps to kind of filter sperm as well. So it kills off the weaker sperm And it helps the strong sperm that has the best chances of fertilizing the egg get to where it needs to go. So that fertile mucus is super important. When you Mm -hmm. you ovulate depends on your menstrual cycle. So it's oftentimes because of that 28-day menstrual cycle, you maybe have learned that ovulation occurs on day 14. But if you have a longer menstrual cycle, you're not ovulating on day 14, right? That first half of our menstrual cycle can vary in length for lots of factors. So to get an idea as to when you might be ovulating, if you have a regular cycle, you could just look back two weeks before your cycle. So if you have a 35-day menstrual cycle, you are probably ovulating somewhere around day 20 or day 21. If you are have a short menstrual cycle and you're 21 days, you're probably ovulating around day seven. So that gives you, you can only ever get your period two weeks after ovulation because progesterone can only be made for about two weeks. So that second half of your cycle is pretty regular. If you have irregular okay. cycles, You can still watch for signs of cervical mucus. You can still figure out your cervical positioning, if your cervix is open or closed, if it's soft or harder. You can still track all these signs of fertility. It's just not necessarily going to happen on the same day every cycle, right? But you can still be watching for these signs. And when you see that fertile egg white cervical mucus, then you know, that is time. Um, And you can also uh, check Mm -hmm. the temperature. So our basal body temperature, after we have ovulated, it goes up um, about a degree after uh, ovulation, and then it drops back down. If there's no fertilization, it drops back down and we get our periods. Um, But I love a book called Taking Charge of Your Fertility. Um, It's a really big book. But it goes through in great detail everything that I just gave you a little mini lesson on. So it will teach you about your menstrual cycle. It'll teach you about the fertile signs. And it'll teach you how to track it and how best to use that to your advantage so that you can hopefully get pregnant when you want to. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So So I have two questions coming up, but I'll ask you the first one now, which just came up while you were talking. Um, so you're saying that you can actually go in and check. I remember, you know, when I was pregnant for my two kids, actually, whenever I went to the doctor's office, they'll be like, oh, we need to check if your cervix is open. So it felt like it was like far away. Mm -hmm. So you say like, we can actually go in and dig in to actually find stuff. But I would, I would imagine you have to wash your hands so you don't put infection, you know, you don't, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, you are Right. So obviously, you want to anytime that you're touching, you know, internally, right, you want to practice good hand washing, um, because you don't want to be transferring bacteria or anything else into a sensitive part of your body. But your cervix is not that far away. In fact, it's probably just about a finger's length or so away from the opening of your vagina. And um, if you're curious, You can touch it. You could even potentially, you know, you can buy a speculum (laughs) off of Amazon for not a lot of money. You can get like a 10 pack for 10 99 or something. Share it with your friends, Um, get a speculum, a flashlight and a mirror and you can see it and see what it looks like because it's not that far away. And um, depending on where we are in our menstrual cycle, Um, you know, when we are ovulating or we're menstruating, it's usually sits lower in our uh, vaginal canal and it's very soft, kind of feels like the inside of your cheek. And uh, in the middle of the cervix, the opening, it's called the os. Um, and it opens and closes depending on where we are in our menstrual cycle. So when we are menstruating, it's open, obviously, to let the blood and tissue pass through. Um, and when we're ovulating, it is open um, as well. So that sperm can get into the uterus and the fallopian tubes. Um, so you can also use that as a guide to where you are in your menstrual cycle. Mm.
0: I feel like I've been schooled today. Thank you. <laughs> so um, so you mentioned about um, ancient fertility and our like, uh, the peak of fertility and how we can use it both ways to get pregnant and not to get pregnant. So I want us to shed light on the not to get pregnant part. Um, um, how does that work? Because mm. I, because what I could think about right now is the non-hormonal IUD, Para. That's the only way I could think about avoiding hormonal. Like, even though you, even though you don't suggest it, you kind of like whatever works for you. But I'm thinking in my head right now. Okay, maybe I should be switching to a non-hormonal method. I was considering like the non um, non hormonal IUD. I don't want to call it the popular brand name, but I'm sure we all know the popular brand name. Um, is that what you were talking about, or is there another natural method?
1: So, okay, so to be clear, a copper IUD, yes. or like PR guard, yes. right, like the brand name, um, that does not suppress ovulation. It does not suppress your menstrual cycle. What it does is it changes the um, environment in your uterus to make it inhospitable for sperm, so that they're not going to survive and they won't be able okay. to fertilize the egg. Right. So if you so I would say, um, while there are definitely risks associated with any form of birth control, a non-hormonal IUD, um, you know, is an effective form of birth control. And it's not going to suppress ovulation. So you're still going to get all those benefits of progesterone and um, your menstrual cycle when you have a a non-hormonal IUD. However, some people choose to use something called the fertility awareness method. That is, um, you know, a collection of habits Or tools of observing your fertile signs. So that's taking your temperature, tracking your cervical mucus, tracking your cervical positioning um, to make decisions around when they are going to have unprotected intercourse. Um, And so if you are, you know, using this method to get pregnant, obviously you know you would time intercourse to when you have fertile mucus. That's going to increase your chances of getting pregnant. Well yeah, you're going to increase chances of getting pregnant. However, if you don't want to get pregnant, you can use these same signs to make decisions around what kind of activity you're going to do. So either when you're in that fertile phase, and there, I want to also be clear that, you know, I'm not a fertility awareness educator. Um, if you do want to use a fertility awareness method for birth control, I highly recommend reading Taking Charge of Your Fertility um, I highly recommend working with somebody who is a fertility awareness educator who can like teach you all the rules and also help you interpret your own cycle so that you know kind of when your fertile window is and what the rules are um, in, okay. in, in relation to your cycle. So basically, when you, when you, um, when you have fertile mucus and you're using fer- uh, fertility awareness method as contraception, you would not get sperm in your uterus.
0: Yeah, so essentially, be creative and look for other other methods to get satisfied. Exactly. Okay.
1: Either you don't. You, exactly. Either you don't have like penis in vagina intercourse during that time, or you use a barrier method of birth control. Like a condom or a diaphragm or a cervical cap. And I can send oh, you yes. a link to include in the show notes. I did an episode of my podcast all about barrier methods of birth control that explain all the different types that are available out there um, that you can use when you are in your fertile phase so that you don't well, be
0: perfect. so you can reduce your risk of pregnancy.
1: Yeah, I'll include that for you
0: um so so I, I would imagine you just explained what you explained was actually charting right okay charting okay yes okay some people
1: call it just charting, wanted to make yeah. sure
0: and how long on average because i know you said your this is not your expertise, but how long on average do you have to wait before you can say for sure okay i've got my system locked down before you can actually trust the system yeah <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I think that that depends on everybody, right? It depends on what your cycles are like. It depends on how clear your fertile signs are, right? Like everybody's... um everybody's like menstrual cycles are different. Some people have lots of cervical mucus that, you know, when they're getting into that fertile phase, it's just wet and wild. (laughs) So they know, right. Um, And whereas other people, you know, they might not produce as much fertile mucus. And so it might be more difficult for them to really know when that's happening. Um, I know for me personally, it was about, five cycles um I went through about five menstrual cycles before I started to feel like really confident about um charting my signs yeah but everybody is different
0: so one last question before I let you go because you've given us so much information so much knowledge and um <laughs> I was listening to a it your podcast one of your videos and you mentioned something about pads from the video um you were talking about how it's appropriate to use um the pads that are in line with your flow are there any risks to using pads that are not in line like so like like my case for example where i use like heavy flow when i i don't have heavy flow because i mean the other one is obvious if you use if you have heavy flow and you don't use them you don't use the appropriate pad you get stained. So that one is kind of obvious. Yeah. So
1: I mean, with a pad, I would say that is not as important as with a tampon. Um. So I mean, with a pad, it doesn't really matter. It's like whatever you're comfortable with, right. And you know, I know, even for myself, I uh, even when I have a lighter flow, um, I tend to choose the long pad or an overnight pad, just because I'd like to have that. Exactly. Yeah. To feel comfortable. Right. But um, yeah, but there's really, with a pad, I would say that there's no risk. The risk comes in when you have a tampon and that risk is related to tox- toxic shock syndrome. So this is something we might have all heard about, but aren't really quite sure what it is. And toxic shock syndrome is an illness that is linked with tampon use. And um, oftentimes you hear, you know, um, it's from wearing a tampon too long. Um, but really, the absorbency of your tampon is a contributing factor to, to the risk of toxic shock. So toxic shock is caused by um, a staph bacteria, there are a couple different types. And when this gets into your bloodstream, it can make us very sick, and it can potentially be fatal. And the link with tampons is when you use a tampon, it doesn't just absorb the menstrual blood, right? It absorbs all the fluid and moisture that's in your vagina. And if you use, um, you know, like if you use a super absorbency Mm -hmm. tampon, but you really just have a lighter, like, but you have a light flow, what's going to happen is it's going to start to suck the moisture out of your vaginal walls in your vaginal canal. And that can cause little micro tears in your vagina. And then if that staph bacteria gets into those little micro tears and cuts, that's where the risk wow of toxic shock comes from. So think about if your like the skin on your hands gets really dry, right? It's um, and the skin can start to crack, right? Or you can start to get like little tears in the skin because it's too dry. We need that moisture to help kind of keep our skin healthy. It's the same in our vagina, right? And so if uh, you always want to choose the absorbency. That is appropriate for your flow. And if in doubt, always, always choose a lower absorbency and just change it more often because you don't wanna be putting yourself at risk. And, um, you know, the amount of blood that each tampon can hold is regulated. So it doesn't matter what brand you're buying. It doesn't matter if you're buying an organic brand, or you're buying a drugstore brand. Um, You know, a light tampon, a regular tampon, a super tampon, these are regulated um, terms. And they will, uh, you can quickly look up, usually it tells you right on the side of the box. Or, you know, it's easy to find online, um, you know, a chart that sets out what the um, absorbency is. Interesting.
0: Oh, mind blowing as well. (laughs) Wow. Thank you so much, Amanda. You're giving us a whole lot today.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. My favorite subject.
0: (laughs) So if the listeners want to continue the conversation with you, how can they reach out to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They can go to my website, amandalaird.ca And on my website or at amandalaird.ca forward slash subscribe, they can subscribe to my email list. I send out emails once a week with podcast episodes and links and um, articles that I write specifically just for my email list. Um, You can follow me on Instagram at amandalaird. And in February of 2019, you can also buy my book wherever books are sold
0: awesome 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 and thank you again for coming to the dream permit show
1: my pleasure
0: thank you did you like this episode if you did i would love you to do just two things one share it with a friend another mom who you think will benefit from this episode there's love in sharing and two i would love to get to know you better let's chat book a free call at dreampermit.com chat or you can send an email to emma at dreampermit.com that is e-double-m-a at dreampermit.com i'll be waiting for your calls and emails and until next time stay fabulously gorgeous and remember motherhood is not a hindrance it's an advantage